0: Mom would make me go every week, um, Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday. And I knew the me before my baptism. I knew the thoughts that I had. I knew the actions that I took. I knew the words that I said. And I knew the me after I was baptized and started taking communion, you know, that that great transition in the church. Um, And I still knew the thoughts that I had and the actions that I took and the words that I said. For the most part, I was still me. You know, over the course of maybe five to 10 years, things hopefully grow, but I was still me. I knew that. You might say the new car smell of my Christianity lasted maybe uh, 12 to 18 hours, 24, 36, if you're lucky. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you say, but I'm still me. Hmm. Then for me, and for like many people in Christianity, the work begins to kick in and we try to be different. Then I what happened for me was the cycle started to go for a period of time where you promise to do things better. Ah, I'm going you know, to nail this Christian thing this week or this day. I'm going to do things better. And you promise, and you eventually fall short. And then you feel overwhelming sense of regret and guilt. And then if we're all really honest with ourselves, we have a little bit of resentment for the commitment we've made to Christ and the guilt that I now feel, a little frustration. And then we come back around and we make those promises again, and we get in this cycle which ends up being an old cycle with new behaviors. This old cycle of my life used to run this way, and now I've just added different behaviors what I call Christianity, but I still have the same cycle. And you know why I think we have such a hard time, especially when we grow up in church, with this concept of Christianity being a new life, brand new? I think it's because we focus on ourselves so much. I think a lot of times when we talk about Christianity being a new life, what we oftentimes think about instantly is this sort of inner, immediate, surprising, constantly refreshing transformation that happens on the inside of us. And eventually we be honest with ourselves and say, this doesn't come every day. I don't, I don't instantly feel refreshed every day and brand new. And like, like sometimes you just feel like me. Hmm. This is a side note, but this is what keeps a lot of people from becoming Christians is that they're actually honest enough to say, I don't know if I can really be different. So I'm not sure I'm going to buy into Christianity. I'm not sure I can change. I'm not sure my life will change. I know I won't be different, so they don't become a Christian. And what we fail to look at when we talk about a new life is we fail to look at it in broader terms, a bigger context. You see, this new life is actually a result of not just your internal state, immediately going from lost to saved or um, from broken to healed or from sinner to saint. And all of a sudden you're just immediately washed and transformed and everything's different. And I've never felt this way before and I'll never feel the old way again. That, that's internal and that takes a long time. But actually there's a new life that's outside of us. A new world that now exists because of Jesus Christ. A new way, a new system of living. A new environment, a new culture, new rules, new laws, a new way that things are governed. In fact, Paul said we're not under the law anymore, but we're under grace. It's all completely new. And when you and I go and live in the new world, the new way that Jesus has taught us to live you and I actually find ourselves becoming a new person day by day. It reminds me of kind of the underlying theme that runs through all of the, the novels that C.S. Lewis wrote, The Chronicles of Narnia. If any of you have ever read those that series, I'm enjoying reading uh, through that series with my kids right now, my two older ones. Um, And Narnia is this wonderful, beautiful place, this this amazing world that um, reminds the characters when they go there, some of their old world, but it's so beautiful. There's different things, it's lovely to be there, everybody has joy, and, and it's a great place to exist, and people access this world all kinds of different ways. They come to this world in unique ways, and when they arrive, whenever the characters arrive, there's, I believe, seven different stories, and they all arrive in Narnia, And whenever they arrive, they realize this is a new place. And the characters have to respond to this new world. They're still them. If you've read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Susan. And they show up, and they're still them in that world. They know who they are. But the newness of the world, they have to respond to it. And they find over time that they actually change. This happens for all of the characters in Narnia. And so as these characters respond to the new world, its system, its method of operation, as they do this, they themselves change and become new people in Narnia. This is what I'm proposing as by way of introduction for us to do on Sunday night. Is I'm not going to harp week after week about how you need to have some inner explosion of transformation. Spoiler alert, that takes a long time in your life. What I want you to do is broaden your vision, your view outside of just looking in your own heart to a new system, a new way of living that Jesus Christ has already established that you can discover. And as you discover what has been objectively purchased and bought and produced by Jesus Christ, you will then become a new person. So let's start that journey together. Tonight we're going to talk about a new freedom, a new kind of freedom. You know, freedom is an underlying desire in Mankind. We, do, we love freedom. In fact, I think that's what gives America such a heartbeat is because finally there's this group of people that just banded together and had this desire for freedom. In fact, freedom has become dangerously close to the idol of our culture. Um, we've talked in other times about how the definition of freedom has changed. I won't do that tonight. But there's an underlying desire for freedom that, res, that, that resides in all of humanity. And in our text tonight, we see a new kind of freedom That the world has never seen before the world has never known this kind of freedom before this kind of freedom that we're reading in Romans 8 1 2 has actually never been offered to humanity before Jesus Christ it's kind of exciting this freedom is set in contrast this new freedom is set in contrast to a very very old problem one that has existed since the fall of mankind Paul calls it this simply in Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation. This is the oldest problem that man has ever dealt with, condemnation. Um, So tonight, two really quick things. The reign of condemnation and the release from condemnation. Just those two things to think about, okay? I want to introduce you to a new freedom, a new way to be free that no one else can sell you, that no one else can offer you. In fact, everyone is trying to offer you a way, a path to freedom, but there is a freedom that nobody else can offer you. But you've got to understand, first of all, the reign of your condemnation to understand its release. Now, um, at the risk of sounding a little bit you know, simple-minded, I'm just going to confirm with all of you that we all here agree tonight that there's something wrong with the world. Everybody okay with that? Can I make that assumption? that there's something wrong with the world. You know, it's actually at this point that there's something wrong with the world, just that statement, that everybody agrees with. Religious people agree with that. Irreligious people agree with that. Conservatives agree with that. Progressives agree with that. Um, Believers in a God, theists, agree that there's something wrong with the world, and guess what? atheists people that don't believe in a God think there's something wrong with the world Sam Harris is probably one of the most prominent new atheists is what they're called today uh, you can he's got a blog you can read what he has to say he himself who is probably the most for, the foremost atheist in our culture in America today is adamant That there is something wrong with humanity. He agrees that there is evil in the world, but he's just convinced that through social evolution, we'll finally figure it out. And if we all would just come together and and evolve out of this through our ignorance, that that, that our eyes would open to education and that we would just evolve and grow, we would stop having evil. That's what he thinks. See what I'm saying? Everybody, everybody says, yes, there's something wrong with the world. We all agree. Where we disagree is when we ask this question. So what do you actually think is wrong with the world? (laughs) That's a fun question, right? What, What do you think? Ponder in your mind for a moment. When I ask you, what's wrong with the world, what is it? You know, everybody has an answer to that. Everybody, every group. And what's unique about everybody's answer It's unique to this point that Christianity is the only answer that I've ever found that you can apply to yourself, and the answer still holds up. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. Ask, uh, you familiar with the Occupy Wall Street movement? You guys heard of that? If you ask Occupy Wall Street people, this is a group of people that have banded together that believe that um, the concentration of wealth is the problem of our society. So if you go to these meetings, these gatherings, you say, hey, What do you believe that if we solve, the world will be better? They would say the concentration of wealth, the top 1% of the 1%. If we would fix them, no one else would have problems. If you ask, um, you know, insert whatever race you want to, lives matter, whatever race you want to insert into that, uh, you know, grouping, and say, what's wrong with the world? They would say it is the people that are not us that are hurting us. Now, you go to, let's say, uh, police officers, you know, people that govern our society, say, what's wrong with the world? Um, I've got a, a couple friends that are in law enforcement. They would say it's the bottom 7% of the world. If we could just cut out the bottom 7%, things would be fine. Ask um, a, a politically conservative person, what's wrong with the world? They will point and say, if you just get rid of progressives, right? If we could just get rid of the left side of the aisle, this would all be solved. Is it too close to the election to say that? Sorry. <laughs> Too many Republicans in the room? It's okay. All right. All right. Let's do this side. You'll like the Ask progressive what's wrong with the world. <laughs> Ask them. You know what they'll say? Sticks in the mud that won't change. If you would just change, we'd be fine, right? All right. One more toes. So if you're over like 40, you're good. Just take a breath. Ask millennials. You know what millennials are? Like, like 18 to like 35? Ask them. Robbie, pay attention. What's wrong with the world? Here's what millennials will tell you. People that make truth claims, that's what's wrong with the world. People that make truth claims. So so people that say, my religion is right, if you would just stop saying that, everybody would get along with each other and stop making truth claims. But here's the problem. Here's my point when I say everybody, when they point at somebody, they can't point at themselves. Let's use millennials as an example. Millennials say, if you make a truth claim, that's what's wrong with the world. Just chill out on truth claims, and we would all just get along with each other. But here's the problem. When you say, when you make a truth claim, that's the problem with the world. What have I just done? Come on. I made a truth claim, right? (laughs) Stop making truth claims, the world will be fixed. I've just made a truth claim. So now I can't even make a truth claim that you should stop making truth claims so the world will be fixed. (laughs) Do you notice the theme in all of those problems? If you listen very carefully, when you ask them what's the problem, they say, them, not us. Them. G.K. Chesterton. I've told you this story probably before, was a beautiful writer, early 1900s, lived in Europe. Uh, was, he, he was a public intellectual, public theologian, was asked by a London newspaper to join and a bunch of other really smart people answering the question, what's wrong with the world? Uh, They were going to write essays. They were going to combine all the essays. This London newspaper believed that if they got all the smartest people together to answer what's wrong with the world, we'd finally solve it. 19, I think, 20-something. I can't remember. And here's his response this beautiful essay. He wrote, Dear Editor, you've asked what is wrong with the world. Me. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. He said, Me. You see, here's what Christianity says when you say, What's wrong with the world? says us us if in your Christianity you say them not us you've misunderstood Christianity you don't get it there's a universal problem with the world Paul calls it condemnation there's two words that come together to make this word the first part of the word is judgment which means you've been found guilty condemnation has first an understanding that you're guilty the second part of the word is the actual sentence that comes down from your guilt so there's two parts what it is actually is this overwhelming guilt that the world lives under the world all of us every person in humanity is living in condemnation life you might say on parole always guilty never released constantly paying retribution for the wrong that we've committed yet we're never able to satisfy this cloud of guilt that hangs over every human in the world. There's an ever-present awareness of our guilt, and all of humanity is working to get rid of that guilt that, that is inside of us and around us. We just do it in a lot of different ways. Some people blame, like I was mentioning. It's them, not us. If I can get rid of them, my world will be fine. But what about your guilt? Some people overwork to try to balance the scale, so if I do enough good... I can balance the scales in my own life that it's finally even. Some people sidestep their problems with maybe charisma or social class. And some people numb the problem of condemnation with just distractions and indulgence. But constantly people are trying to shake this issue of condemnation and we can't shake it. What if Christianity offered a freedom from this condemnation that nobody's ever offered you before? What's the reason behind it? Look in verse 2. Paul says that there is a law of the spirit of life. It set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Paul calls sin here not just an action, but there's a law to it. You see, sin is not dormant. It's not this lifeless list of bad things that you're not supposed to do, but you can occasionally dabble in them, and it's not a big deal. Sin is alive. And sin is a master. Sin doesn't just give you access to indulgences and then you get to go free when you're tired of doing it and you just tell God sorry about that. No, once we're there, we are under what Paul calls the law or the power of sin. You're enslaved to sin. And sin has most certainly a master's name is Satan. Paul calls this the law of sin and death. This doesn't mean that sin has rules like you got to obey sin's rules. It means that it has a way of operating. Think about it this way. When we say the law of sin, insert instead of sin, gravity, law of gravity. Now, we, we don't, when we say law of gravity, we don't think, well, like what are the nine rules that I have to obey today to make gravity happy with me, right? No, like, I don't have a choice. Right? I wake up, gravity is operating, it's working right now. I am obeying the law of gravity because it, this is how gravity works. And when he says the law of sin, he's saying this is how sin works. You don't, like we sometimes think, just dabble in bad behaviors and then walk out and just kind of wash your hands and it's all good. No, no, no. Sin is alive. Sin is a master. It enslaves you. And once you turn over to sin, it owns you. There's a law by the way sin works. And it's deeper, broader, and more pervasive than you ever give it credit for. That's what gives it its strength. The law of sin and death is this. To find out what the law is, you got to see what really caused sin, the birth of sin. Sin is born out of self-trust. That's the root of sin. When I say, I do not trust God, I now will trust myself to give me pleasure, joy, satisfaction in life. That's the root cause of sin, Genesis 3 forward, when we trust ourselves and don't trust God. And so the way it starts is the way it eventually operates by its law. You see, you are now under condemnation, the guilt, the weight, the punishment of sin. And the ultimate outcome will be death, separation from God. But in the meantime, you are under the power of sin and you must operate by its laws, which means the only person you now trust is who? You. That's how sin works. And the reason the law of sin leads to death is that you on your own cannot solve this. You can't avert death on your own. I haven't met anybody that has yet on your own you can't solve the death problem and so it's a vicious cycle that says you're on your own because you've chosen to do this on your own so good luck figuring out this on your own you've got death coming and the weight of sin you're on your own and what happens is people have turned to self-reliant ways to escape the haunting condemnation the guilt that pervades us some people do it through money well let's say you choose that route What do you do if you don't get enough and you go broke? Some people through themselves say, I'm going to do this through fame. I want to be known, and if people know me, I'll feel better about myself. Well, what happens if nobody cares? Some people do this through honor. I'm going to be an upright, good enough citizen. I'm going to to impress people enough. I'm going to get enough education that people look at me and say, wow, look at that guy. Well, what happens if you fail? Some people are going to just pursue this through comfort. If I can just find enough comfort, I'll get relief. But what happens if your life, you hit a rough patch, an illness, a loved one's gone? What happens? Some people pursue this through self-created religion, and they become what we see in the New Testament is called like Pharisees legalists. But what happens if that's your path and you actually slip up one time? Your life crumbles. And some people even try to do this through irreligion. But here's the problem with even irreligion. Say, who cares, right? Just forget religion. I don't need all this condemnation stuff. I don't need the weight of guilt. What happens when you actually end up caring about somebody beside yourself? Your irreligion will have no answer for you. And it'll leave you scared to death. Worst of all is this. Worst of all is when you actually excel at some of these things that reinforce your belief that you can save you. You get rich, you get famous, you get honor. You become ultimately religious, and people look at you and say, you've arrived, and all those scratches you have get itched, right? You feel good that you've solved the condemnation problem. What happens? Oh, man, if God would be so kind to us to not let us experience self-only success, that would be the kindness of God so that we might actually be saved. What's the answer? Real quick the release from this condemnation is a different law in verse 2. Not the law of sin and death. We've got another law that's competing with this that's going to win. And it's not the law of sin and death. It's the law of spirit, the spirit of life. Again, not a set of rules, but a standard by which things operate. See, the spirit is the one who gives life. When a person gives up their spirit, like Jesus bowed his head and let go of his spirit, what happened to him? He what? He died, right? The spirit is what gives you life. And think about Adam in the garden before he was alive, before he was animated. He was a pile of dust, right? He was dirt. What gave Adam life? Did Adam give Adam life? Did he say, I got this? And he starts like pumping on his own chest. He didn't do that, did he? God came down and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Who gave my three children? Who really gave them life? God gave them. Someone said, that's good. God gave them life. Okay? So who is going to give you life out of this condemnation? Will you? Only the Spirit. But how? How? Paul says it this way For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free where? In Christ Jesus, in Christ. This is Paul's famous go-to line. He's meaning, you better go to Jesus because it's in Jesus where this freedom from condemnation really exists. It's only in Him. But the question really is for this. Like You might know where I'm going because you've heard this before. But, but think through this with me, will you, for your friends that are not Christians? Because I want you to be able to answer them, help them find the freedom that they're really longing for. How does another man who lived 2,000 years ago really give you freedom today? How does that happen? How? Well, it reminds me of a time when I was a kid, I was in fifth grade, um, and my parents thought I was riding the bus home from school, but I wasn't. I was walking. Shouldn't do that, but uh, me and two friends were doing that and we lived really close to this college called Muskingum College. We were walking through the buildings and going home and me and my two friends, there was no one around and they had these really low windows and they had some really big asphalt rocks next to it. And so one day we picked up a rock and we, and as soon as we did, there was a huge hill and we just took off running home and no one caught us. So the next day we Shoo, psh, broke the window, ran halfway down the hill. No one came out. And we walked back up, tried it again, and then ran home. Well, the third day, um, I had one friend who was not yet uh, his 40 time window, got him drafted. Let's say it that way. He was a uh, big guy and shoo, broke the window, didn't run because we thought we got this figured out. And we whizzed another rock through the window. And there had to be somebody known. He had to be standing right there because this guy, like huge man. You know, I still see him as like this Incredible Hulk monster and comes running around the corner. And me and my other friend who were ready to run, took off. We made it out of there. But our third friend got caught. And, you know, took about an hour. I grew up in a small town and uh, I was sitting in the campus police station at Skingham College. My dad was with me, pretty mad. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, it was bad. They they were talking about, should we call should we file a report? Should we take these guys to like, you know, talk to a juvenile judge? Like like they were starting to talk big words, talking about getting the police involved. Um, and And at that point, I knew I couldn't fix this. I was done. I was really scared and the part of the story I hadn't told you yet was that my dad just six months before that for the first time in his life lost his job from Muskingum College worked there for 20 years and he was standing back on a campus with people that he had worked with where he had lost his job where they downsized they cut his job and he was there it was one of the most difficult times for him and for him to be able to even go back there and stand there with me was big and he was a handyman maintenance guy And he said to the guy, he said, okay, um, if I'm able to just, you know, pay for the materials and fix it, why why don't you just let me take these boys home and me and the parents will just take care of it. And the guy finally cooled off and he let us go home. And that Saturday, my dad went to the store and he got all the materials, the glaze. These were old windows and took me up there. And I wanted to help, and he said, you can't. This is too dangerous for the job, you know, taking broken glass and then cutting glass. He had to get the, you know, the old glass cutter. He had to take all the putty out himself. It was a dangerous job. Um, tape the windows, take the glass out, put the gla- measure them, put the glass panes back in, put the putty in. And I stood there, and there were all these, I remember watching, there were all these uh, college kids. School was still in session, walking around looking at him. You know, He had his old work clothes on, looking down on him and I couldn't do anything to make this right. I just had to watch him fix it. And I don't forget walking back to the truck, he put the toolbox in the back of our 76 Chevy, rusted out, and he shut the gate. And he just put his arm around me and said, let's go home. And I couldn't fix it, I just couldn't. But he bought me freedom from that condemnation. You know what, I didn't care what that campus police said. I just wanted to be accepted with him. And when he accepted me and said, hey, let's go home, he had fixed the problem. Okay, Jesus stepped in as a human being, as a man, fully human, don't discredit that. And he lived with zero sin. He was free from the universal condemnation of sin, death, and yet he let himself die for you. How does that give you freedom? Number one, because the punishment has been paid for You don't have to make up any stories anymore. You're actually free to own your part in this world and say, I sin. You can do that now without fear. You don't need to justify yourself anymore. You don't need to defend yourself anymore. You don't need to puff your chest up and have pride anymore. You can just say, it's been paid for. I can own my part. That's freedom. You know how free it is to be able to confess without fear of retribution? The weight of the world can come off your shoulders. That's freedom. It's been paid for. But number two, in Christ, you now have the only thing that will draw you out of the slavery of sin, the law of sin. And that's love. A love for you that is greater than you can even love yourself. You see, that's actually why we have such a hard time in our relationships, whether it's our marriage or friendships. Friendships. Because we are not convinced that we can trust people's intentions with our life. We are not convinced they love us like we love ourselves. And so we don't trust them. We, we, are, we keep distance from them. Sometimes for good reason. But you ought to be convinced by Jesus Christ that there's nobody that loves you more than he loves you. And with, armed with that knowledge of his love, you can trust his direction. You can submit to him and say, I'll follow you wherever you go. You can now look at Christ and know that somebody loves you more than you and you can learn to trust him. And in doing this, when you trust him, he heals you. He frees you from the vicious cycle of self-trust. And he ultimately saves you. That's a new kind of freedom that nobody has ever offered you. I'd love for you to have that. You can come as we stand and sing.